We look at this text this morning and the disciples' question of our Lord at Matthew 19, verse 25. This question is asked in the context of what has already taken place. Last week, we studied the young man who came to the Lord and he believed in his heart that he was just lacking one thing, that he had kept all the commandments from his youth up and he had done everything right. But he had also asked a question. He had asked, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That question of that young man was seeking. That question of that young man was also a man who had great possessions because we know the way that story or that narrative ended. He went away sorrowful. He was sorrowful because God, through Jesus Christ, had put him to a test. He put him to a test that said, if you really truly are going to be with me, you should be willing to part with those riches, be willing to part with the possessions. Now, I made it very clear that he's not teaching that that's part of salvation. What he was teaching him is he was teaching that this young man that we learned about last week still had a bigger issue. He had a problem of sin. He had a problem that was within him and that he went away because he was not willing to part with his possessions. So we cannot take these verses that we've read this morning out of their context. Jesus used that event of the young man walking away sorrowful to take an opportunity to now teach the disciples an important lesson. He's going to make some observations and he's going to apply them for the purpose of instructing his disciples. Jesus didn't just teach because he had nothing better to do. Uh, Jesus taught with the authority and he taught with a desire to affect their minds. To affect their minds and to bring this incident, this event with this young man who went away sorrowful and teach them a lesson. You'll notice that he says, Verily, I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we get into the exposition, we need to understand what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, nor anywhere does the scripture declare, that there has not been, nor will there be, some who are rich, called by God's sovereign grace, and brought into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not teaching that heaven has no people who were rich. That's not what he's teaching at all. You'll see by his, the demeanor in which he speaks, the demeanor in which the disciples respond to this question, that this really has a profound effect on them. Because there had been this thought process, and the disciples were, uh, they were prone to it as well, that people who had riches were believed to have God's favor upon their life. And that the rich people, those who had riches, were the ones God really favored. That was a belief that permeated society. The Pharisees taught it. The Pharisees used it to justify the many riches that they had. But Jesus is not saying that there have not been rich people and enter into the kingdom of heaven. His point is this, that when you look at it and you consider those who are rich in this world, they are possibly, we could take from his words here, they're comparatively few. But he does say there's something about these riches that make entrance into the kingdom of heaven difficult. It's not the riches themselves. It's not possessions themselves. It's not money. 
Some of you have grown up in churches that have said, if anybody has money, they must not really be a child of God. That's not a Bible teaching. There is no incident that says it's the riches, and if you have money or you have possessions, you can't be saved. Sadly, it's led to some churches to believe that we're only to be in poverty, and you should make yourself poor if need be. Yet throughout Scripture, we see there are people who had great riches, and yet they were used for the glory and honor of God. If you study over the life and history, even in recent history, you will find that there have been believers who, because of the riches God gave to them, they were able to use those for the great benefit of society. Jesus is not saying that riches are the problem. It wasn't the problem with the young man who went away sorrowful. But what he says here is it's not the riches themselves that make the entrance hard and difficult. It's the trust and the confidence in those things. In Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 24, it says, Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It's the trust in them. Christ explained it's not the riches. It's trusting and placing your confidence in them. Mankind is prone to do that. We are prone just like the young man who had great possessions, who thought he had kept all the commandments of God. He had done everything right. He just lacked one thing. And Jesus proved to him he was still lacking one very important thing. He was not willing to part with his riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We also know that this is not an isolated teaching. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul, writing to young Timothy, cautions and exhorts him in this manner Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Now, a lot of people skip this next part Who giveth us richly all things to enjoy? That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Jesus is not teaching something isolated about riches. Jesus himself taught it and so did the Apostle Paul. So that's the context of what Jesus is teaching. Now again, let's make some observations about this. Notice verse 23, we see the audience in which he's speaking to. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, speaking primarily to those who are already believers in Christ himself. Why would he tell a story like this or a principle to men who are presumably, again, already members of his body? Well, notice he says, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is it about the rich man that makes it difficult? Well, it's true that worldly possessions and worldly riches, apart from a work of God's grace, have a hardening effect on the heart. They not only harden our heart, they hinder our heart. They deaden our heart to the things of spiritual nature. They influence the soul. Some rich men 
will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And there's no, no doubt in my mind that heaven is filled with men and women who had great riches. So to teach that riches mean you cannot be a child of God or riches means you must have done something wrong to gain riches is just not biblical. We don't have the answers why some have riches and others do not. But we do know that Jesus is not teaching, nor did Paul teach, that it's riches that are the problem. It's the trust in them. But Jesus does say it's very hard for the rich man to not trust in them. You see, the temptation is to allow the riches to rule your mind. And when that happens, the kingdom of the world becomes more appealing than the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there is a intentional push, even, even in our society, that what you need is uh, we need to all have equal riches. We need to all have these things of the world. And yet, that's not our greatest need. Houses, land, gold, silver, bringing up the date today, Bitcoin, stocks, mutual funds, bonds, whatever investment you can think of, those things are not wrong. But if they are the thing we trust in, that's what Jesus is talking about. It is going to have a deadening effect to you. Sufficiently throughout history, we have found that rich men have scorned the word of God. They've scorned God's people. We hear it often said about some rich people will say, I am a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman, whatever the case is. Again, it's the trust in them, and we are prone to trust in riches if we have them. It is worthy, I think, of us to take note here that Jesus is speaking to the disciples and what does he say? Verily I say unto you. This is not intended necessarily for just unbelievers here today, but he's speaking to those who are presumably already in the kingdom of God. Why share such an important principle to people who are already presumably in Christ? Well, verse 24, Jesus begins to build upon this. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now remember who's speaking here. Jesus is speaking with the full weight of his authority. Remember they even told, spoke of Jesus, the Pharisee says, this man speaks like no other man speaks. He speaks with such authority. Jesus' words here are authoritative words. We're not supposed to be looking at this and say, okay, let's try to interpret and come to the best conclusion of what we think Jesus meant. Jesus is speaking very clearly about how hard this is by giving what seems to be, what not seems to be, is an impossibility. What is the impossibility that he gives? He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Okay, first of all, on its surface, that is a physical impossibility. It doesn't matter which way you want to look at this. It is impossible for a camel of any size to pass through the eye of a needle. There's no need to go looking for some obscure meaning. What did Jesus really mean? Why the camel? What was the significance of the camel? Jesus is speaking what we would call a New Testament proverb. And he's speaking very clearly. 
He's comparatively giving us how hard it is for a person, a rich man, because he's prone to trust in riches, he compares it and says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man. So that makes us sit up and take note, doesn't it? And say, wait a minute. He's giving us an impossibility and saying that it's harder for a rich man than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. This is what we call an expressive proverb. It means precisely what the words convey. There's no sense in trying to find out what's the obscure metaphor, what's the illusion, what's he alluding to. This is a teaching that Jesus is being very plain. Every preacher has been guilty of not speaking plain words. I've been guilty of that. Trying to find and dig and find some obscure meaning. And many, many times the word of God is plain and clear and he means exactly what he said. Again, keeping the proper context. Not just a person who has riches, but the person who trusts in riches. There's a very, very important distinction. So what is he showing his disciples? He is showing his disciples that riches are far more of a hindrance than they are a help. Sometimes people have made that plea to God. God, if you'll give me more riches, then I'll serve you. God, if you'll give me more riches, it's more of a hindrance than it is a help is what he means. In fact, it's such a hindrance as to render the entering into the kingdom of heaven impossible, that's what leads to the context, without divine intercession. In other words, nobody is getting into the kingdom of heaven without a divine intercession. A camel is not only large, but we think about it, again, no matter how large that camel is, there's no way it's going through the eye of that needle. The only way it could go through the eye of a needle is by what? By a miracle. By a miracle that no man could ever perform. Could God make a camel pass through the eye of a needle? Yeah. If he chose to do so. You say, that's an impossibility. That's why Jesus says, with man it is. And you say, preacher, are you really foolish enough to think that God could do that? I'm just that foolish. Call me a fool, but I believe the Bible from cover to cover. I don't have any doubts about what's taken place. You say, well, what about some of those metaphors, allegories, whatever they are? I believe the Word of God. And yet, here, Jesus is speaking plainly. In the very same manner, Jesus is teaching that a rich man cannot enter the kingdom of God except by a miracle. What is that miracle? The miracle of saving grace. How few of the rich, we might say, even hear the gospel, but I will also say, how few poor people hear the gospel. It's often very easy to say, you know, the rich people are just so occupied with a lot of things going on in their life. All the poor people will listen. That's not true at all. We have homeless people living in Springfield. Have nothing. Just because they're poor doesn't mean that if you go and give them the gospel that they're going to get saved. Even out of their poverty-stricken condition, apart from a miracle of God's grace. We're tempted to say, well, we've got to get all the rich people saved because they're all trusted in riches. Poor people will trust in whatever else there is. That's the point Jesus is making. 
This is not about the rich and the poor per se. It's about what our trust is in. Maybe the rich are too busy, too proud to even give an ear to a lowly preacher of the gospel. But even if they hear the gospel, sometimes it takes tribulation and struggles to even have them seek after it. Jesus is trying to make a very clear, plain point. In many instances, rich are tempted to trust in their riches. I think we trust in things that we don't even realize we're trusting in them. There are poor people that are trusting in things they shouldn't be. There are middle class people who are trusting in things. Whatever class, whatever you want to say, people will trust in various things. But Jesus is making a very clear point. Again, with the context of the young man who went away sorrowful because he didn't want to give up his possessions. It's a perfect time to teach his disciples. So even if the rich man is converted, how hard is it for them to continue when they have so many things they could trust in? The difficulties become very enormous when we think about, like even John talks about, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the danger of aspiring to be powerful, the risk of finding what you think is security in riches. We see a lot of times when Jesus performed these miracles, remember, it's a miracle when he healed a single person of a single ailment. It's a greater miracle when he raises someone from the dead. But never lose sight of the fact that whether you're rich or you're poor, you were saved by a miracle of God's divine sovereign grace. Nothing more, nothing less. Whether you had riches or you had nothing, you were not saved without God working a miracle, a greater miracle than a camel going through the eye of a needle. And that's, that's not descriptive enough. Because we don't understand how sinful we are. Like I've said, my encouraging words to you, you're worse than you think. Sin's got a greater hold on you and me than we realize. We make decisions every single day that are not God decisions. They're based upon our flesh. They're based upon things that we want, things that we do. We're making decisions with our life because money, because riches. We say, I don't trust in riches. I trust in God's sovereign grace. Listen, if you're making decisions based upon strictly upon what riches are going to bring you, you're not anything unlike what Jesus is talking about. We've heard it many, many times. Someone says, I've been given this wonderful promotion and all I have to do is I've got to move. It's going to be hard on my family to move. They don't even stop to consider, is there a Bible-preaching, truthful church where they're going? They say, oh, I'll figure that out later. No. That may be a reason for you not to go. You say, but the money's too good. It's going to secure my family's future. You're trusting in riches. Maybe not for your salvation, but you're still trusting in riches. That's what Jesus' point is. Verse 25, notice the response of the disciples. When they heard it, they were exceedingly amazed. Now don't ignore the word of God's use. He doesn't just say amazed, exceedingly amazed. And that's what leads to the question. Who then can be saved? 
uh, if you read some of the uh, commentators and you read some of the, in the original languages, you see that this was described as not a common astonishment. This is something beyond being astonished. It filled them with an exceeding amazement of this astounding truth that's being presented to them. Now they're hearing this from their master. They're hearing this from their Lord. Some have said this is one of the greatest astonishments that the disciples experienced while they were walking with him. And we say this seems like such an insignificant event. That's why I said it's important to take the Bible at its word, the plain truth, exceedingly amazed. Now remember, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago that even the disciples had previously thought that wealth was a sign of God's favor. And now, here they're being told, if those who have riches can only be saved with extreme difficulty, what hope do us poor disciples have? If the rich who have God's favor, Jesus is saying how hard it is. Do you see what the disciples are doing? They're looking at their situation as being poor disciples who gave up all. They gave up their work. They gave up their trades. They gave up their fishing. They gave up their tax collecting. And they said, Jesus is basically saying that the rich people who have God's favor, it's, almost, it's impossible for them to enter in. We have no hope. See why the context of a question matters? Who then can be saved? If you start off and you just use that as your sermon title and you never talk about why they asked the question, that thing could run off the rails real quick. But it's not going to run off the rails because he's talking in the context of everything we've talked about prior. That's why this expositional preaching matters. Because we can't isolate it and take it out of context. But that's what they thought. They were brought to despair. So they ask a natural question. If this is an impossibility, who can be saved? How can we be saved? Even our Lord's disciples felt themselves to be absolutely confused by Jesus' plain words. You know what they were dealing with? that's similar to what we deal with in our day and age? Prejudice towards those who are rich. Happens in churches. Church members get mad at another church member because they have more riches or they have more wealth or they have more possessions and it becomes a source of contention. It shouldn't be. That beauty of what 1 Corinthians 12 talking about we're all of one body. We're not all the same, but we're all part of one body. Why would we envy one another? We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I mean, I've heard a lot of things over the years. I've heard people sit in churches not much different than this one and say, well, they, that person over there has got riches, so they must be doing something against the law. They must be doing something wrong. They must not be serving God because somehow they think that there's a prejudice against it. Jesus was not talking about that. He's talking about the trust in them. So they were bewildered. But I love verse 26. But Jesus beheld them. The word beheld is a beautiful word. Again, it's a shame that a lot of modern translations change this. 
It's kind of like the hymn, Behold Our God. It's, it's, it is to look with intent. To look with intensity. To look with love. To look with adoration. To look with compassion. To look, he beheld them and said unto them, with men, this is impossible. What's impossible? All that he just talked about. The salvation. The rich man. All. With God, all things are possible. Jesus beheld them. He looked upon them. He looked on them with love and told them that God could do what they could never do. To enter into the kingdom of heaven is impossible to even the best of men without the power of God. That's why we hammered so strongly this morning in our 10 o'clock hour about where salvation comes from. It's not by man's will and free will that he is a child of God. It is by a work of the Spirit of God through the gospel. Period. It's not Arminian and it's not hyper-Calvinist. It is sovereign grace. It is the work of God. Jesus is telling them there is nothing impossible with me. Now, I realize people like to take verses and make them their life verse, and this is a popular one. This is one that people get up most mornings and they look at it on their post-it note. They're going to ready to walk into a difficult time at work. They've got a difficult boss. They've got a difficult person they've got to deal with. And they recite this verse to them and say, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. I'm not saying you shouldn't motivate yourself with some scripture, but please understand what the context of what this is. It's kind of like I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They're, they're, they're great verses, but if you isolate them, you're missing the entirety of what the purpose of those were. Remember the one about with faith you can move a mountain? That whole context, Jesus was talking about the ability to forgive the unforgivable. We forget about that, don't we? Context, context, context. To enter into the kingdom of heaven... It's impossible for all men, rich, poor, middle class, smart, not smart, educated, uneducated. Why? Because all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. If it's not the sin of trusting in riches, it'll be another sin. So before we proverbial throw our stone at the rich man and say that rich man's a sinner because he... He, I'm sure he gained all that by dishonesty. I've heard it said. I've heard Christians talk about other Christians with money and say, yeah, I think he's probably dishonest. What a sad state of affairs. What a sad state of affairs. The very fact that anybody can even claim the name of Christ, it was a divine work of God alone. Mark 4, verse 19, 
It says the cares of this world and the, deceitful, the deceitfulness of riches, remember that, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, it becometh unfruitful. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches are the barrier to the soul. God can even cause those barriers to yield. God can make the rich man give up all of his possessions for the cause of Christ. I'd encourage you sometime this afternoon or sometime this week, just kind of look up some Christians throughout the years who were CEOs of corporations, who they sold it all, they gave it all up. They gave it to the cause of Christ and nobody who received those benefits who were able to build certain things and sometimes it was the building of orphanages. I was just reading last week, you know one of the great accusations against Charles Spurgeon was that very thing. He had money. But do you know how much and how many things he was funding with that? Go read about he and Susanna's dedication to orphans. Read about what he did with the riches that he had. It's not that the riches are the problem. But it can become a hindrance if we're not careful. With God, all things are possible. What does that mean? Well, that means that if, if we're consistent with what God is and who God is, God could, by His almighty power, as we've already said, He could reduce a camel to make it pass through the eye of a needle. Now, if you don't believe that, you're already starting behind. With men, it is impossible. I don't care what angle you take it at. I don't care what you try to do. You're not going to get a camel to pass through the eye of that needle. It's an impossible thing with man, but not an impossible thing with God. So it's the mighty power of God Jesus is talking about here. And that same power, that same grace that God works even in the rich man's heart. There have been rich men who were trusting in their riches that when Jesus when God came through them and the mighty power of God saved them, they dropped their trust and confidence in it. Some of them gave it away. Some of them used it for the glory of God in other ways. He can influence even the most selfish possessor of riches to make them part with it. Now, if you've been listening, you could ask yourself the question, why didn't he do a work like that in the young man last week? If God could do it, why didn't he? Why did he not change the young man's countenance? Why did he not change the young man's dependence upon him? Why did a mighty work of God's saving grace not pass through that young man? Because it's God's purposes and God's will. If you believe that God can actually make a camel pass through the eye of a needle, it's even a greater thing to believe that God can change the sinner's heart. I said, if you're amazed by the camel going through the eye of the needle, your amazement's in the wrong place. The, the greater miracle is to save a sinner. Again, if we had a glimpse of what we really were, we would be, we would be on our face before God every day, afraid to even move in some cases. Because there's still a part of you that lingers in that old nature that says, boy, oh boy, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good compared to most. 
No, you're not. And neither am I. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace. Think about these men that Jesus called to Himself. We realize Judas being the primary exception here. Think about what He did in each one of their lives. Willing to drop everything and to follow Him. To deny themselves. He tells them about taking up their cross and to follow Him. Submitting to ordinances of the day that were despised by society. See, we don't think often enough about the work that Jesus did through the life of the disciples. Unless you're full-blown Arminian, then you just say the disciples just all chose to follow him. And you would be desperately wrong. This was not men looking at the situation and saying, I think I'll choose Jesus today. This is a divine work of sovereign grace in their life. He does this great miracle. But I also want you to think about that God is not hindered by the depravity of man. He's not hindered by whatever man is trusting in. But he also, again, remember I told you he's talking to disciples. What he's talking about here, maybe not so much with their actual salvation there, but maybe a promise that he would sustain them and keep them for what they were getting ready to go through. Who then can be saved? Oh, there certainly is a question about spiritual eternal life here. But it's interesting, next week, if you come back again, the men are going to go right back and ask the question, who's going to be first? After hearing this, these disciples say, who's going to be first in the kingdom? We've already dealt with that in Matthew one other time. You thought Jesus would have taught them and that would have Settled the matter. The disciples are no different than you and I. We've got to be put in remembrance, those here Wednesday, always in remembrance of the things that we already know because we continually have to battle our own sin nature. He's going to make them a promise that with God, all, th- with God, all things are possible, even the sustaining of their very lives. What a joyful truth it is for the writer and the reader to consider this. Now, this might seem like a strange passage that I want to read, and I'm not going to make much comment on this. I'm just going to read this. And I want, obviously, I want the Spirit of God, as He should with everything else we're doing. It should not be my words. I just want to read this, and I want the Spirit of God just to simply do the work as we listen. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, we have the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Again, understanding what Jesus is saying about riches. Understanding the concepts now of what the Bible teaches. I want us to read this passage with some understanding. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. 
and in hell. In hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torment, seeth Abraham afar off, Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Friends, when we view our salvation properly, when we view our own weakness, when we view our own depravity, when we view the power of sin over our life, it is a complete impossibility that we breathe spiritual life into ourselves. It's an impossibility. No one believes for a minute that a dead man or a dead woman whose body's being held at the local funeral home can command that body to get up. I don't think anybody believes that. But do you realize that God can command even the dead to rise. Spiritually and physically. Not only is it an impossibility with man to to rise up, bring from the dead spiritually, but it's impossible with man even to be raised from the dead to the resurrection of life. You see, it's only when we understand And we are given the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, to obey the command to repent and believe the gospel because the Holy Spirit has done a regenerating work in our heart that we can only return praise and thanksgiving back to He whom alone is due. All of our salvation from beginning to end is of God. You and I did not one single thing. It was a work, an impossible work that man could not do. 
We can sit and we can be amazed at the flood. We can be amazed at the, the, at, at the creation. We can be amazed at these things. And we can say, these are all an amazing work of God. But never get over the amazing and astonishing thing that a wicked, vile, wretched sinner like yourself and myself, that God showed his favor on us who, who deserve nothing but to say the very thing that the rich man saw, and in hell. That's what we all deserve. We deserve that when our earthly bodies come to their end, we deserve to all be in hell. And yet Jesus Christ, through his atoning work, accomplished your salvation. If you are in Christ today, He did the work. Jesus didn't pay some of it. He paid it all. And when we come to the realization, we know this, God can save anyone. But God does not bestow His saving grace upon every single person. Now, we don't exactly know what happened to the young man from last week's passage. Maybe at some point he was saved. But the last thing we saw about him is that he went away sorrowful. But I also think we can take the narrative of what Jesus was saying today. With God, all things are possible. Was it possible that even after that interaction with that young man, that later on by the power of God he was saved? Certainly. I'm not going to stay on this point very long, but when you look out on the wickedness and the vileness of what's going on in our society... Have you actually looked at somebody and said, God can't save that kind of wickedness? God can't save that advocate for LGBTQ. God can't save that spokesman for homosexual marriage. God can't do that. Then you don't know my God. And if you're praying for anything else but the salvation of their souls, you're praying amiss. If you're praying, I wish God would send a screaming comet and kill them all, you're praying wrong. Because every one of you deserved to die. Every one of us deserved to be under the just wrath of God. And yet God had mercy upon your soul. Oh, but that sin makes me so mad. So does your sin. Your sin angers a holy God. No matter how small you think it is, the very smallest sin, you know, you know how I'm saying that, with quotes, your very smallest sin condemns you to hell. And yet, by His grace, He saved you. May God help us understand this today. And if you are here today and you've never repented of your sins and trusted and believed in Christ alone, what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Your riches? It's interesting, we think about it often, we take this for granted too, our health. I'm fine. I don't have to worry about dying. I'm young. I'm in great shape. I take care of myself. Whatever it is. Some people are trusted in their families. It's an amazing thing how many things we're trusted in and maybe we don't even know it. And may God help us to answer that question and answer it. And the disciple said, who then can be saved? May we be able to respond that with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's pray together.